0: John chapter 14, kind of in the midst of uh, this intimate time with Jesus and his disciples. He's already shared the Last Supper with them, and uh, Judas has already left to betray him. And he's got this time with them, and he's uh, kind of sharing some important things. They're going through what I would call separation anxiety. Jesus is sharing with them about his having to go away, and they don't know where you're going, and why are you going and can we come and how do we get there? And so they're asking all these questions and Jesus is trying to answer some of their questions to give them some, some reassurance. And, and that's what John 14 is about. And the reason I chose this passage, out of so many I could have preached about the resurrection, I mean, we could have taken the historical perspective and the historical look at the resurrection. I could have given you all the evidence about why the tomb was empty and why Jesus didn't really swoon and why nobody stole the body. And we could go through all that evidence. And I think many of you know that already. That's one aspect of the resurrection, the historicity of it. And that's an important aspect. You know, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Is that a historical fact? But there's another aspect that I think is also important because the resurrection is really only important at two times in your life before you die, and after you die. the only two times you'll need to know about the resurrection. Before you die, after you die, everything else is fine. You don't need to know about it. So if you fall into one of those categories, uh, then you need to know about the resurrection. So many of us would say, okay, historicity of it, I believe in the resurrection. We kind of mentally say, well, you know, it doesn't really hurt me not to. It's just an academic thing anyway. So sure, yeah, pastor, let's go. We'll believe, I'll believe in the virgin birth, and I'll believe in the resurrection. We say we believe in it. You know so when I die, I believe that somehow, some way, biologically, I will be resurrected, and the Bible teaches that in First Corinthians that when a believer in Jesus dies, that our body is put in the grave, but we get a new body it 's called a resurrected body or a glorified body, and Jesus is rising from the dead, not being a disembodied spirit, but actually having a body that he could that you could touch that he he would eat with them on the beach. so this proves that Jesus rose from the dead not just figuratively speaking, or spiritually, but literally and physically. And so we, the church, believe that he was the first fruits. Meaning, mean, what he did, rising from the dead bodily, we also will rise from the dead. And I could preach on that, and we could talk about that. But that's, and I think you're okay with that. Like, okay, that's when I die. That's a hopefully a long time from now. I don't have to worry about that now. But Paul says in that passage in 1 Corinthians, he said, if we have hope for Christ... Just now and not in the future, we're of all men most pitiable. If our hope in Christ is just for now, he says to them, and not for the future, then then that's pretty pitiful. So he assumed in that letter that their question was not about Christ and being beneficial to us now, but the future. They questioned what you guys sort of believe. Yeah, okay, when I die, there's a resurrection. That's what they questioned. What's going to happen when we die? How's the resurrection work? How's this thing work out? So for them, that was what they questioned. I think for us, I think we're okay with then. I think our question is now. Okay, I believe in the resurrection, but so what? How does that, what does that matter to me? I lost my job. I've been sick. My kids are rebellious. I'm struggling financially. What does the resurrection have to do with my daily life? So that's where we're going with this passage. And that's why I chose John 14. Because I hope by the time we're done between me and my cell phone and my plant, if you can still call it that, that you'll have a greater understanding of how to live a resurrected life now. And I wonder if I took a poll, don't raise your hand, but I wonder if I asked you guys, do you actually experience what you would call a resurrected life or maybe you would call it a spirit-filled life? Paul calls it that in Romans, the spirit-filled life. Or we know uh, Paul also says in Romans 6, that we were raised to walk in newness of life. They're all kind of synonyms. The resurrected life, the spirit-filled life, this newness of life. And that's not a newness of just that my life started now and it goes forward, not just quantity, but a new quality of life, a new type of life. So has the reality of the resurrection actually affected your life on a day-to-day basis? And I don't know what you would say, but that's for you to think about. So in John Chapter 14, Jesus uh, tells the disciples that they're, again, worried about him going away. And he says, well, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If you have your Bible open, we know verse 1 of chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. Christians, we've been through that verse. You guys know that verse. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. That word's going to show up later on. And then he ultimately tells them in verse 6, he says, I am the way The truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And he's telling them that he has to go and he's going to come back for them. But he says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Now pay attention. He says, I am the way, the truth and the life. What would you expect him to say after that? Like if you just heard that, if I said to you, I'm the way, the truth and the life, what I would expect is him to say, and no one has life without me. But he doesn't say that. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. So I think if we talk about our definition of life, I mean, we have a biological definition of life. Uh, You guys are the later service. At the earlier service, they were here, but I'm not sure they were alive because they hadn't had coffee yet. So they were physically here, but our definition of life might involve caffeine at some level. But we have a biological definition of life. We're breathing. Our heart is beating. Our brain is active, at least on some level this morning. We're biologically alive. But I think the biblical definition of life, if there's an alternate definition, would involve relationship with God. Even Paul would write to uh, the church in Ephesus and talk about people that don't know God as being separated from the life of God. Separated from the life of God. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says no one comes to the Father, except through me. So evidently, I think I can safely say that there is a connection between life and a relationship with God. If he's the life, and then he says, no one comes to the Father, I think maybe there's a a connection there between having life and coming to the Father. You know it, you read Genesis, Adam and Eve fell, they ate from the tree they weren't supposed to eat from, and God warned them that it was gonna bring death, but did they die physically at that moment? No, they stayed alive and they had kids and raised a family and moved to the suburbs and all that stuff. They got kicked out of the garden, actually moved to the city, you could say. But they didn't die physically. Much later on they did, but the death was a spiritual one. In the garden, the spiritual life was in charge and the soul and the body were subjected to it. But after the fall, the body took over and the spirit was dead. And so this is what the whole Bible is about. How do we become spiritually alive again? A lot of people physically alive, but not spiritually. And I don't know which category you fall into, maybe physically alive and not spiritually alive, or maybe you are, I don't know where you are. But this is what Jesus is telling them. If you drop down to verse 19, he's just told them that uh, he's not gonna leave them orphans. He's not gonna leave them alone, unprotected. So they're trying to figure this out. Remember, he's gonna be crucified. He's gonna be buried and he's gonna rise again. And they don't quite understand how this is going to work out, how this is going to happen. He's just telling them, i got to go away, but I'm coming back. So he says, verse 19, a little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Because I live, you will live also. There's a cause and effect. I call it a dependency. I have a dependency in my life. A dependency relationship with God. I'm not codependent. He doesn't need me for anything. But I'm dependent on him. For what? For life. Why? He's the only source. You see what he said there? He said, because, because I live, and that's not just, not because I have life, but because I am life. Jesus is life. It's not just that he's alive. It's that he is life. He just said that earlier. And because he's life and their attachment with him, they'll live. He's going to go on in chapter 15 to talk about the vine and the branches, right? If you're a vine, that's rooted part. And if you're a branch, if you're disconnected from the vine, what happens to you? You die. So does a branch have any life in itself? Somebody say no. Tell me your brains are chugging this morning. Come on, folks. No, a branch does not have life. Let me talk to you about cell phones for a minute. These are pretty important tools, aren't they? Now, this is an Apple phone, so I can't get in there and get the battery out, not without a hammer or a saw or something, but there's a battery in there. Now, if I took that battery out and I plugged this into a charger, would anything ever happen? I could take it to church and sit it in a chair and I could read the Bible to it. Would anything ever happen? You see, like my phone wouldn't have without a battery, I don't have life in me. I am not a source of life. I need life from an external place. My phone needs power from an external place, but it has to have a way to contain that power, to hold on to that power. So first it's got to be saved. It's got to have a battery. Now the battery gives it the capacity to receive a charge. Before that, it was just dead. No hope, without God, separated, without any power. So let's say I put a battery and I charge it up and then I unplug it. How long does that charge last? For some of you, like a couple hours. use that thing like crazy. But then what happens if it's unplugged from the source of power, it starts to deteriorate, right? It loses power. And eventually, you know the language. I tried to text you. You didn't answer me. Do you not love me? Why don't you answer me? My phone was, oh, what do you mean your phone was dead? Your phone was never alive. But we talk about it like it is, right? We recognize that when we say my phone died, what we're saying is that It had power and it had the ability to do what it was created to do, but because it ran out, because it didn't have a constant source of power, it ran out of power because it doesn't have in itself a source of power, it died. So you plug it back in and, and then off you go and you're good for a while, but it needs a source. See, you and I are the same way. We do not contain a source of life. We need an external source of life. There's only one source of life. And I checked on Amazon. Did you know Amazon sells 438 million products to 300 million people? I thought if I could get life anywhere, Amazon should have it and I could have it here by tomorrow. So I checked the Amazon and I put in the word life. I was curious. Can I get life at Amazon? I can get, did you know I can get life at Amazon? I can get life cereal. I can get life cereal at Amazon delivered to my house. I can get the game of life. But I could not get life. And you know, you appreciate hopefully the humor in that because we recognize that uh, that there's only one source for these things. So if my phone, imagine, you know, maybe I could put a, a long distance charger, like a mile radius, and I could, you know, go around a mile and keep it plugged in the whole time. But wouldn't this be better? What if I could take a generator, and shrink it down to the size of a battery, and put it in my phone, then what would happen? I would have in my phone a constant source of energy. I'd be rich, first of all, because everyone would want one. But then I would have, the phone itself is not a power source, but it would have in it a source of power. And then it would generate its own power. See, we have in us those that know the Lord because He lives, because He is life. The real miracle is not that we just plug into him, but that he comes to live in us. That's what that song was about. Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead, who has that resurrection power, takes up residence in our life. Watch how this happens. Let's read on. Because I think that should make a difference. I'm just silly enough to think that that should make a difference in our lives. Aren't you? Don't you think that should mean something? I think it should. So he says, because I live... You will live also. The converse would be true. If he didn't live, then we wouldn't live. I mean, if there was no Easter, if there was no resurrection day, if there was no resurrection, then we would have no life. There'd be no life. That would be very disappointing and very depressing. But he says, at that day, that day when he lives and they live in him, at that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. So he moves on from dependency to intimacy. From dependency, I'm dependent on God for life. To intimacy, Jesus, an intimate relationship with the Father. Jesus, an intimate relationship with us. If you ever took math, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. If Jesus has a relationship with the Father and with us, guess what that means for us? We have a relationship with the Father. How? Through him. That's what he says. I am in the Father And you are in me, Jesus says. It's a oneness relationship. And I am in you. That's the real miracle. Like, I'm cool with being in Jesus, but why would he ever want to come into me? I mean, he's got better places to hang out than in me, I would think. But that's what he says. Verse 21, he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. So we get another piece of the puzzle. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it's he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So now all of a sudden we introduce this concept of love. So we know a little bit more about the relationship. We know that God loves the world. We read that in John three sixteen. God so loved the world, so why is he talking about this in this passage? And why does he talk about it in relationship to obedience? Look at verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, keeps them? What does that mean? Keeps them? Does that mean like, Put it on a card in my pocketbook or, I mean, I don't have a pocketbook, but you know, I'm speaking for the ladies out there. Put it on a card in my wallet or put it on the wall in my office or does that mean keep? Well, again, let me take you back to your cell phone. To keep means to guard or to look after. So what happens to you when you lose this little thing? You go freaky, don't you? like, ah, my life is over if I can't find that because everything I do revolves around me having this thing. And so when we misplaced it, when's, how many of you have recently misplaced your phone? See, very, isn't it amazing how few, why so few? Because you guard it. Because you know you can't afford to not have it. So you're very, how many of you are very careful with your phone? How many of you spent like a hundred bucks on a little protecting thing to protect that phone? Because you know you can't have anything happen to that phone because you need that phone. So you guard it, why? Because it's precious to you. It's precious to you. And that's the idea. That's the understanding. When Jesus says, he who has my commandments, literally my word, my instruction, what's his instruction? Basically, he said, look, love one another as I have loved you. We should be guarding that precious to us, keeping that, acting on that, paying attention to that. I mean, wherever this thing goes, I want to make sure I got an eye on that. So wherever you go, you should have an eye on if you're keeping the word have an eye on loving one another as Christ has loved me that's really important so we would say to God if you want me to show you I love you well I'm going to wear a tie on Easter I mean I think this to tell Jesus I really care about him I mean I don't ever wear, I don't wear a tie for anybody and you guys are to laughing you know that you've been around here if you know if I got a tie on it's only one of four occasions either Easter or Christmas or somebody's getting married or somebody died and I got a tie on So I think, Jesus, okay, I'm going to show you I love you. I'm going to wear a tie to church today. Or I'm going to raise my hands when I sing. Or I'm going to do this, or I'm going to do that. And all that stuff is fine to do, but none of that says to Jesus, I love you. And you know what it's like to hang on somebody's words? When someone you love talks, and you listen to them, and you're hanging on their word, that's what he says. If you keep my commandments, that's what shows love. See, that's the key. It's not about your, the person you work with. It's not about your kids and what they did to you. It's not about what your parents never did for you. It's not about what the government's not doing for you. All of this, you living a resurrected life, has nothing to do with anybody else except you and Jesus, period. All of this is about you and Jesus. He has my commandments and keeps them. It's he who loves me. And he who loves me, will be loved by my father. Wait a second, pastor, hold the phone. I've heard about this Christian God of love. And now you're telling me that I have to keep the commandments for God to love me. Well, remember God so loved the world in a general sense that he gave his only begotten son. He really loved the world, but that doesn't become real or meaningful to you until you accept that until you receive that to you acknowledge your sinfulness to acknowledge your need of a savior, to accept the fact that he does love you. And you can accept it up here and then something happens. You see, you could stop it there. That'd be like putting a battery in the phone and tossing it to the side. Just because I got saved, just because I got a battery in my phone, doesn't mean I can neglect to ever juice it up, right? I got to power it up. Got to find the cord and plug it in and remember to plug it in before I go to bed and all of that. Because it need that life needs to be fed. And so he says, and he who loves me will be loved by my father. Now, God already loves you, but this is talking about intimacy and deeper love. More than just the general person, this is specific to God's people. God's people who love his word. And that's why he says it, because I want you to experience the love of God, not just to know about it from a book and There's a lot of people that I know that, well, I got saved a number of years ago. I walked forward or I said a prayer or whatever. But do you read your Bible? Well, you know, not really, pastor. What do you think about what Jesus said about that? I don't know what Jesus said about that. I never read. But I I don't know that God loves me. I don't know if I sense God's love for me. Well, you won't. You won't because he says, that special intimate love of God will be experienced by you when you do what he says. And he says, and I will love him and make myself known to him. I don't see what God is doing in this. I don't know where God is in this, right? Unless you're doing what he said to do in the midst of that crisis, in the midst of that confusion, in the midst of that drama, instead of putting God's word aside, instead of putting the commandments of Jesus aside, who tells you to forgive, and it will be forgiven you. And you can go all through the Sermon on the Mount. You can read his commands to you. And you say, ah, oh, forget about that. This is serious. This is different. This is unique. No, God doesn't understand what's going on. Yes, he understands. And you'll destroy your own life by putting his word aside. You'll starve yourself to death spiritually, and you'll never experience the love of God practically poured out in your life through the spirit. You can't separate the life of the spirit with a life in the word. So, of course, they've got big questions about this. Wait a second. They say Judas verse. 22 says, Lord, how is it that you're going to manifest yourself to us and not the world? How is it that some people are going to know you deeply and others won't? Isn't that a great question? Why is it that you share about Jesus with some people and they have no clue what you're talking about? Even today, they're just home having lucky charms and watching the news or whatever. They have no, no care, no, no interest. How is it that Jesus makes himself so real to some And for others, it's kind of like, ah, I hear about this, but I'm not really sure. I don't understand it. I don't know about it. Well, Jesus answers that question. He said, verse 23, if anyone loves me, you see, it's given that he loves you. That's a given. That's dealt with on Good Friday, the crucifixion. God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's dealt with. The question isn't, does he love you? The question is, do you love him? And I'm not talking about gushy, gushy feelings of high school dating stuff. Like, oh, I love him so much. Every time I'm around him, I feel warm fuzzies. Some of us have been married long enough to know that the warm fuzzies don't last. You got to move past immature love to mature love. And that's what this passage is about. It's about mature love. And he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. He's talking about in the future after Jesus rises from the dead. You'll keep my word, even at that time, you'll keep my word. My father will love him. And look at this, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That sounds pretty intimate to me, moving in together. That says Jesus wants to move in with you. And he doesn't just move in uh, casually. He doesn't want just a casual relationship where we're just kind of living together, but I'm not going to commit because at any time I might want to check out of this relationship. He is fully committed to you. So much so, and he used it in the context of an orphan. You think about an orphan at an orphanage and, well, we're going to adopt an orphan and we're going to bring them to live in our house. But in this case, the orphan has a house and the dad says, I'm going to come and move in with you where you are. Later on, I'll bring you to my house. But for now, in this time, I'm going to move in and dwell with you and remain with you. This is what the book of Revelations tells us. Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will open the door and let me in, then I will dine with him and he with me. You see, the question isn't where's God. The question is where are you? The question is, is the door of your heart open to him? He's ready to come in. He wants to be real to you in your life. The question is, the door gets opened by keeping his word. That's what he says here. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. If you don't want to hear what he has to say, why would he hang around at your house? He would not be an unwelcome guest. He who does not love me, now the converse, he who does not love me, does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So he gives the opposite. The one who loves me, remember, love is first. Uh, You love and that's why you keep. That's why you guard. That's why you consider precious. It doesn't work the other way. You can say, well, I'll obey the commandments and then maybe I will love Jesus. doesn't work that way. Obeying the commandments won't make you love God. And again, please understand that we live in a feelings-based culture right now. Love is an action word, not just a feeling, because there's too much in the church generated by feelings. I have a feeling of love for God. It doesn't say you got to have a feeling for me. It says, if you love me, then you're going to do something. There's something you're going to do, not somewhere you're going to feel. The feelings come later. The feeling of being loved by God will follow your obedience to his word, because his word is there to express his love to you it's like a love letter. So now what does this have to do with my plant here? That is a good question. I'm glad you asked. So turn with me to Psalm 1 if you've got that marked, because I think Psalm 1 has a lot to tell us about the Word of God and what it means to actually live in newness of life, to walk in all the things we claim to believe on Easter. So Psalm 1 is about the way of the righteous, the way of the ungodly. I'm not going to spend a long time on this. There's just something specific I want to show you. Psalm 1 verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed is the man who's not getting advice from people who don't know God. Nor stands in the path of sinners. Not hanging out where sinful people are coming to and fro. I'm not going to hang out by the bar just in case I get thirsty and need a drink or sits in the seat of the scornful. So those are the things the blessed man does not do. But verse two says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Don't think law constricting, think law instruction. His word. It's possible to delight. It's necessary to delight, to enjoy. I delight myself in ice cream. Anybody else with me? Those of you that know me, no, it's, uh, thank you back there. It's got to be Briar's. It's all natural, creamy love in a bowl. And I sit down sometimes when I give myself the freedom to do so, and I enjoy, I delight myself in that bowl of ice cream. And in the second bowl, in a third bowl, <laughs> oh, I love that. I delight myself. But the blessed person delights themselves in the word of God. See, This is the thing, too few Christians do that. So I talk to people all the time and I watch people struggle and suffer and in painful situations and difficult things. And the first thing I usually ask, so tell me about your devotional time. When's the last time you read the Bible? Well, you know, I don't read as much as I should. But hey, I'm joined the club, right? How often? When's the last time? Well... I read, I think it was three weeks ago or something like that. I'm like, well, try plugging your phone in once every three weeks. See how that works for you. You see, you have the life of Christ in you, but you never experience that life of Christ because you are starving him. Like my plant here, watch what happens next. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night meditates day and night. Here's some things you think about day and night. That's the thing you're obsessed with. That's the thing you're always talking about to everybody else. It's that last movie that was out. It's that hobby you do. It's that thing you're into. You talk about it all the time. You're meditating, thinking about it day and night, all the time. It's, it's obsessing you. And God's word is put on the shelf. Well, I haven't really thought about the word of God in a while. And, and I'm wondering why my life seems so dry. And you're trying to suck life from that thing, that thing, whatever that obsession thing is, that's where you think you're getting life. But the problem is it doesn't have life. Like Amazon, you can't get life from your kids. You can't live off your kids' success. You can't live off what you did in 1979 when your high school soccer team won the championship. You can't live off that raise you just got, and how successful you are at work because you ain't gonna always be successful. You can't live off what great health and what great shape you're in. Why? Because you're going to get old and die like the rest of us. So you see, we have these, what Jeremiah calls, broken cisterns. They're wells. They're not living water. They're wells. They have a little bit of water, but it runs dry. And then you look for something else to plug into. I'm going to plug in over here. I'm going to plug in over there. Well, the psalmist in Psalm 1 says, I got to explain this idea of the word of God being this food for the Christian. I got to explain this to them. How can I explain it? I need an example. I need an illustration. Let me use a plant. Let me use a tree. So he says, this person who meditates day and night is like a tree. In what way? A tree planted by rivers of water. Do you see the connection? Someone who meditates day and night on the word of God has a constant flow of life-giving word and instruction of God coming into their life. You see, here's the funny thing, this tree planted by a river of water. Water, a river is living. Remember what Jesus said to the woman he met at the well? He said, give me a drink. And she said, we shouldn't be talking. And then the conversation goes on and and he basically tells her, you're gonna drink water from that well, but I've got water that once you drink of it, you ain't never gonna thirst again. Well, he doesn't say ain't, but that's kind of my thing. You're never gonna thirst again. Because I'm the living water. And he says that when you take in this living water, it's going to bubble up inside of you like a spring in you. That's the miracle. The source moves inside of your life. The source of life moves into your life. Because he's life, then we live. Why? Because he lives in us. We have the source of life in us. That's why we don't worry about death because you can't kill someone that's got life in them. So my plant, I'm gonna tell you guys, look, I mean, I knew enough to put it in good soil. So there's good soil in here. It's got the little white things. I got it at Lowe's, the potting soil, put it in there. And I even watered it for about three days after I planted it. And now I don't know what happened. I can't imagine what went wrong. And you're saying, well, pastor, um, I can't believe they let you pass to this church if you don't know what's wrong with your plants. What would you tell me? What does it need? It needs water. Well, that don't be judgmental of me. Church is so condemning. How dare you tell me I need water? Okay, all right. So let's assume you're right. It needs water. I got some water. There. Now my plant has water. What are you laughing at? I gave it water. Well, no, 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 pastor, that'll never work because the water has to actually get absorbed in the soil. Wait a second. You mean the water has to be poured on and then absorbed into the soil so it can be taken into the plant? And do you know what happens with a plant that absorbs water? You see this plant, this tree, it's by a river of living water. That's what it means to meditate day and night. It's a constant flow. So I'm gonna come to church, but I'm not sure I believe anything. So you're gonna hear about the water and you're gonna talk about the water, but what's gonna happen? You're never actually receiving it. It's not actually getting into your life. And so what happens is you continue to remain dry and then someone asks you, you, after you come for about a month or two months, then you leave and you stop coming back. And then someone says to you, well, why don't you go to church? You say, oh, I tried that. It didn't work for me, right? It didn't work. Well, I tried water in my plant. It didn't work for me. Stop judging me. Of course it didn't work for you because the water has to get into the roots. Watch what happens. The water gets into the roots and begins to climb up as the leaves give off water and suck water in at the, and the plant sucks water in at the roots. It creates a vacuum. I'm talking biology now because it makes sense. The water comes in at the bottom. It's the loss of water at the top causes a vacuum and that water by that vacuum travels up and that's what makes this plant stand upright. It doesn't have a skeletal system, does it? Why do plants stand up when they're alive? Because they have a constant cylinder of water flowing through them, giving off at the top, taking in at the bottom. Doesn't that sound like how life should be? You take in the word of God, it strengthens you, it stands you up. It's called turgidity in biological terms. It's the power of that column of water to keep you upright like the plant's spine. But it's dependent on two things. Water coming in on one end and going out on the other. You gotta take it in, you gotta give it out. You gotta take it in, give it out. And watch what happens. You see, right now I would say my plant is pretty depressed. Pastor, my plant comes in for counseling. Pastor, my life just feels so dry. Are you bearing fruit in your life at all? No, I'm not really fruitful. I mean, I've been coming to church for a while and I pray. Are you depressed? Yeah, I'm depressed. My life is falling apart. <laughs> And they wonder why, why Christian? Why is my life falling apart? Why do I not feel like the resurrection is real to me? Why do I not experience the love of God? Why do I not experience life as a Christian? Because you're not in the word. And that spiritual life has to be fed by spiritual food. There is no other way. Just like there's no other way for my plant to live It needs water. You don't have the source of life in you. You need life from outside, and you need water to fuel that life, the water of the Word of God. And then you'll experience being a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season. That's one sign of life, by the way, is fruit. Dead things don't bear fruit. So one sign of life is fruit. You'll be like a tree that brings forth fruit in its season and whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. Those are pretty big claims, aren't they? But I bet some of us in here could say, amen, pastor. I didn't used to read the word, but I've been in the word lately, and I'm seeing a difference in my life. I'm actually trying to do what God says to do. And then you can stop searching for life other places, because you are not going to find it. Because you think that, well, there's no life here for me. Because it's not a exciting like that is or like this thing is. And you're going to keep searching. You're going to keep searching until you find out that all of those other wells you thought you'd suck life from have run dry. That tree planted by rivers of living water is sucking life, sucking life, dependency, intimacy, taking it in, experiencing the love of God for myself in real time, in real life, not just when I die but right here and right now, the fruitfulness of a resurrected life. Amen, church. Amen.